Welcome to season eight of PIN South Africa's podcast, The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm your host, PIN South Africa board member, Bongani Kona. Every year on the 15th of November, PIN centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from this symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison, or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. At the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering them a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with imprisoned Rwandan journalist Diodone Nyonsenga. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, CPJ, Rwandan authorities arrested Diodone Nyonsenga, who also goes by the name Asan Kiyuma, in 2020, and accused him of impersonating a journalist and forging a press card. He was acquitted in March 2021, but authorities appealed that ruling, and he was retried and convicted in November 2021. He was serving a seven-year prison sentence as of December 2022. Nyon owns and reports for Ishema TV, a YouTube channel that critically covers a wide range of topics, including local politics, culture, and human rights. Ishema TV is no longer available online as of early November 2022. Penn South Africa calls on Rwandan authorities to free Diodone Nyon and other detained journalists. You can read more about the intricacies of his case in our show notes. In this first episode of Season 8 of Penn South Africa's podcast, The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation, I'm delighted to be in conversation with the poet Sharif Shanahan. My name is Bongani Kona, and I'm a writer, editor, and lecturer in the Department of History at the University of the Western Cape. Sharif's debut collection, Into Each Room We Enter Without Knowing, was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Poetry and for Publishing Triangle's Tom Gunn Award. Shanahan's poems have appeared in The Nation, The New Republic, The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, The Paris Review, and in various other publications. He is the guest editor of the summer 2023 issues of Poetry Magazine. Sharif lives in Chicago, Illinois, and is an assistant professor of English and creative writing at Northwestern University. His second book, Trace Evidence, was published earlier this year by Tin House, and in it Sharif continues his piercing meditations on the intricacies of mixed-race identity, queer desire, time, mortality, and the legacies of anti-blackness in North America and elsewhere. The grief inside the poems, or perhaps at the generative level of many of the poems, is exactly to do with the separateness of our species and the ways in which we have divided ourselves. And there are ways that those divisions are really quite beautiful and to be celebrated and ways that are seemingly innocuous or neutral and then ways that are obviously rooted in hate and fear. But even innocuous separateness is separateness. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Welcome, Sharif. Thank you. I am really honored to be here with you. Sitting with your two books, Into Each Room We Enter Without Knowing and Trace Evidence, 
brought to mind the title of South African Mongezi Feza's classic jazz composition. And the title is, You Ain't Going to Know Me Because You Think You Know Me. And knowability is a thread that runs through both books, and it's something that I hope we'll get to explore. But for now, I'd like to begin by asking you about your family background and how that has shaped your work and contributed to your development as a poet. Thank you for that essential question, and I love the title of that jazz classic. I was born in the early 80s in the Bronx into a mixed-race family. My father is Irish-American from New York City, and my mother is from Casablanca, Morocco. Most of my family on my mother's side is still in Morocco. Originally, we were from the south of the country and over two or three generations emigrated north to Casablanca by way of Marrakesh. How those family circumstances have shaped me and my work are really to do with the way that my mother's background and cultural inheritance, being a North African, you know, it's, it's so funny. This is the heart of everything I do, and it remains difficult to distill because it's so complex and thorny. But really, what has shaped me about that background are the questions that have been inside those family circumstances, as I've just described them, are really to do with how we hold race in a kind of U.S. American perspective. And, you know, we have a U.S. American father, my brothers and I, and our mother, of course, is from Morocco. She is Black presenting, as one might say, and it's clear that there's significant Black heritage in our family that my mother and her many siblings really disavow themselves of, and they do not identify with Blackness or Africa at all, you know, as kind of the landing point, really the upshot of it all. And, you know, the experience that my mother had after immigrating to the United States was one where she was perceived as Black, read as Black, assumed to be African-American, which of course she was not. And so there was a dissonance there in the way that she was perceived and the way that she understood herself that extended to me and my brothers. And so, you know, I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for my brothers, but the experience that I had growing up was not a mixed race, black, white experience in the way that we often hear about that or have often heard about that as sort of being caught between the two. It was really an experience of being caught, if that's even the right, the right word, between whiteness and a, a blackness that did not recognize itself as such, that did not identify itself as such. And so it was, it was more complicated. It might have otherwise been. And for me, generated feelings of placelessness, questions of belonging and selfhood and self-concept. Where could I see myself in the world? You know, there were no mirrors, though there was love in my home. And those questions, you know, are in some ways the questions of my life. And they were certainly the questions of my early life, and they are at the heart of my creative work up until this point. Does that answer the question, Bongani? Yeah, thank you so much. I'll actually come back to some of the things that you've raised, but I just want to stick for a moment with your education as a poet. Maybe two interrelated questions. One is, can you remember when you first started writing poetry? And then the second thing is, I was listening to this really beautiful episode of a BBC podcast called Shortcuts. Mm -hmm. 
which features Mary Jean Chan. She's a Hong Kong Chinese poet, and she was talking about the influence Adrian Rich had on her work mm -hmm. as providing a powerful antidote to the queer shame she grappled with in her early to mid-20s. And I wondered if you had similar companions when you started out as a poet. Yes. I wrote as a sophomore in high school. It was definitely my high school years. I remember before that writing short stories when I was eight or nine or 10. You know, I remember sitting at the edge of my parents' bed with a notebook and letting my imagination run wild and, you know, writing stories about dragons and princesses. <laughs> you know, they're probably, those notebooks are probably somewhere in the Bronx and the apartment where I grew up, where my parents still live, but not poems. And I remember after my grandfather, my paternal grandfather passed, I did not know him well, actually. And so it was a strange feeling that I had because I understood that something enormous had just taken place that would have a ripple effect on my family and my extended family. But I did not feel a kind of grief or loss because I did not know him well. And what is complicated about that is that he actually, we lived in the same building. And so my father was estranged from his immediate family, though they lived, you entered the building where I grew up, there was an a single entryway. There were two staircases on the sidewalk that merged in a single entryway. And then the apartment building opened up into two different staircases. And we were on the first floor on the right. And my father's parents were on the top floor on the left. And so we would sometimes see one another in that that vestibule that everyone had to enter the building through, but we did not know each other. And it really was to do with confusions and biases about race and identity and my parents' union and how that affected his relationships with his parents and his siblings. And so I, I sat down at the computer, having lost my grandfather, not really knowing what it was that I was feeling because I understood that grief maybe would have been expected of me, but it was not what I felt. And so I, I tried to find language to articulate the thing that was inside me that at once I understood was particular, perhaps unusual, because grief, again, would be the expected response here. And so I drafted something towards a poem, but it's the first time I think of this in answer to your question, because it was the first time that I put language on the page that physically resembled a poem that was lineated you know, and I have thoughts about why that was at that time, but that was the first gesture. And I would say probably 14 or 15, the first poetic gesture, the first effort toward what might have been a poem or was perhaps a poem. And, you know, the poets who have accompanied me are many, and I find great sustenance in what we might call the poetry community. I'm not sure what that is, and questions of community are of interest to me, but I've centered my life in and around poems as much as I can. And one of the benefits of that is that I've been able to connect with poets all over the United States, in some instances in Europe, who are on their respective journeys. And I learn by watching, by being in proximity to, you know. And so there's a kind of interpersonally, socially derived sustenance that might not be on the level of the poem, per se, but really on on the level of the life, right? And how one is choosing to move through the world and, and live as a poet and, and prioritize that work, you know, which is important and something I wished we all talked with one another more about.
But in terms of the work, inside the work, my first two teachers in college as an undergraduate was incredibly blessed to take my very first poetry workshop with Yusuf Kuminyaka, which in hindsight is, you know, what a blessing. You can't, you can't even really appreciate it 19 or 18. I think I was 18 when I took uh, the class with him. What it meant to have access to that person, that mind, spirit, and the lessons that I learned from Yusuf in the moment, there have been lessons that have unfolded over the years as I've gotten further away from that class and actually formally reconnected with Yusuf later on when I was in an MFA program at NYU and Yusuf advised my thesis 12 years or 13 years after I had first studied with him as a freshman at Princeton. But the lessons in that class, in that workshop, were really editorially focused. They were really about rethink this word, you know, maybe the poem ends on line 12 instead of line 15, rethink a title, you know? And that was vital, that was really important. It was about the muscularity of the language, you know, the tautness, the economy. It was the next class that something perhaps even more vital to me then took place. And that was a class with the poet Linda Gregg, who passed maybe four years ago now, I think it was maybe 20, 2019. And in that workshop, we barely talked about craft. <laughs> we barely talked about poetic craft. We talked about the spirit and the soul, what it meant to be alive, and what poetry could be a conduit for, what a poem even was before we could even begin to try to make them, and by extension, what a poem was not. And that emphasis on the spirit of poetry, the lifeblood of the poem, right? The essence of it inside the craft and the musicality and the figuration and the form was really crucial for me at that stage in my life. It was really exactly the kind of intervention that I needed. It helped me see why a life in poetry would be a life worth living, why that would be a thing to do. Because I saw with Linda the way that poems had anchored her life and given her a sense of purpose and direction and a vehicle for endless discovery about the experience that the poems were coming out of. And so something shifted for me in that class, something changed for me in that class that was really essential. And, you know, I, I say to people in shorthand, if I hadn't met Linda or if I hadn't taken that class, I probably wouldn't be writing poems now. And I say it facetiously, but I think it's probably true. Thanks, Sharif. That was really moving. I'll invite you to read from Trace Evidence shortly so that our listeners can get a sense of the texture of the work. But in the meantime, I'd like to ask you about the two epigraphs in this book. The first is from Franz Fanon, and it comes before the poem Colonialism, mm -hmm. and it goes like this. I believe in the possibility of love. That is why I endeavor to trace its imperfections, its perversions. And the second is from a Chinese philosopher, Mencius, have I pronounced it correctly? Mm -hmm. And it reads, a sense of shame is the beginning of integrity. So why the choice of these two epigraphs, shame and love, and what relationship do they have to the collection? You know, I'll take the, the second epigraph first, if that's okay. The sense of shame is the beginning of integrity. And that's the, the epigraph to the first section of the book, which is the section of the book that most explicitly pursues questions of mixed race identity, a racial liminality, a racially derived subject position that is really marked by 
instability inside of that, questions of knowability, unknowability, what can be communicated from that subject position, what cannot be communicated, right? How an individual inside such a position is received or even can be received by others. And of course, those subjects and themes are inside all the poems, even the poems that don't explicitly touch on those subjects, you know, that they are informing everything and shaping everything in the book. There's a way that the shame that I'm pointing to Mencius in order to kind of anticipate these poems is more readily associated with the individual who has been subjugated, the individual who cannot see himself within the system, the individual who is occupying this sort of racial liminality, and that it's a reckoning with the reasons for that shame that might lead to a sense of integrity, wholeness, self-possession, despite the external forces that have engendered the shame in the first place. But acknowledging the shame and interrogating it can eventually lead to this position of integrity. But there's also a sense that I have making these poems, moving through the world, you know, with the inheritance that I have and how I've come to understand, you know, my family story, my own personal story, you know, that the sense of shame is also very much inside the individuals who feel completely okay inhabiting such a system and who, because racial hierarchies are such that they might kind of neatly fit into that system, they have less need to question it. That shame is still a factor in that. It's still present in that. I think of that famous interview that Toni Morrison gave to Charlie Rose, I think in the late 80s or the early 90s. It's a very famous interview that you've seen circulated, I'm sure, many times, you know, where she says, if you can only be tall because someone else is on their knees, then you have a problem. It's not the person who's on their knees exactly that has a problem. They have a different type of problem. But if you need them to be on their knees, then you yourself have a problem. And, you know, she continues and she felt that individuals who were racialized as white, white people had a very serious problem and that they they should, in her estimation, figure out what to do with that and leave her out of it. You know, that was how I remember that interview. And so there, there must be, I think, shame inside the individual who needs someone near them unknown by them, unknown to them, perhaps even unknowable to them, to be less than they are. You know, the need to have someone beneath you must be an indication of something inside you in need of address and that I, you know, would wager to call shame or a kind of shame. And so it's, it's really in that way that that epigraph for me was functioning, though I understood that the first association and the first understanding that folks would have encountering that epigraph was that the shame was in the speakers, of course, and in the individual who was navigating the liminality and the sense of placelessness. That's so much at the heart of that first section. You know, the epigraph for the book, the Fanon, came later when I was working with my editor, and I knew that the book was a triptych very early on, and I had the epigraphs that introduced each of the three sections, but I was I was also thinking about the entryway in colonialism as the, the prome or the frontispiece, the first poem through which, you know, to enter the book or the lens through which to read the other three sections and what kind of work that was doing and why that was important to me. And it, it was very important to me in the end because it established Morocco 
as the origin of the identity questions and the origin of the Blackness within this particular family, which felt vital to the questions that the book navigates and pursues, right? The Fanon specifically, you know, just in thinking about why it has been important to me to pursue these questions, and maybe this is in a way also an answer to your first question about how my family circumstances have shaped my life and my work, was that the unknowability that I felt, you know, not seeing myself kind of easily reflected within the social world was an obstruction to love. It was an obstruction to connection and a sort of in it togetherness, which for me is a core value as a person that has come to be a core value that we are beholden to one another, that we are all sharing the same circumstances, even as our lives are very different, and even as the immediate circumstances in any given life would of course be different than the immediate circumstances of someone on the other side of the planet. But there is a level at which we are all here together at the same time, navigating certain essential mysteries. And the grief inside the poems, or perhaps at the generative level of many of the poems, is exactly to do with the separateness of our species and the ways in which we have divided ourselves. And there are ways that those divisions are really quite beautiful and to be celebrated and ways that are seemingly innocuous or neutral and then ways that are obviously rooted in hate and fear. But even innocuous separateness is separateness. And there was something about the circumstances of my early life that made me question the integrity of how we had divided ourselves. Because there was a system before me, a kind of racial hierarchical system before me that did not account for me, but here I was on the earth. Here I was, <laughs> you know? And so the fact of me had to trump whatever ideologies or social expectations of my body, the way that it was perceived. And so love for me, I think, you know, is really at the heart of all this, you know, like I'm really interested in how we can find one another, how we can locate one another and touch one another, commune, understand, share. That for me is really just what I am most essentially in pursuit of, you know, and it happens that the identity questions that perhaps are unanswerable that I have navigated in my life are the conduit to that idea. They highlighted the deeper truth of oneness and togetherness and love. So that's the choice of the epigraph. Thank you so much. It was a difficult thing settling on which poems I'd like to ask you to read. So please may I actually ask you to read Colonialism and Mulatto Quadroon. Of course. If you could read both of them back to back. But maybe before you do, I guess for our listeners, could you also just talk to us about how the book came about? And you'd also started speaking about the structure as a triptych. Mm -hmm. Could you also just speak to us a bit more also about the structure of the book as well? Okay, sure. That sounds great. In the fall of 2015, I left my job and apartment in New York and went to Morocco for what I thought would be a year on a Fulbright to conduct genealogical research and to research literary and visual representations of Blackness in the Maghreb and in Morocco specifically. And a few months into my time in Morocco, I was on an overnight bus that crashed and I was badly hurt. And it took several days. It took more time than it 
should have and ideally would have to understand the extent of my injuries, but I was badly hurt and in danger. And I was medevaced to Zurich, Switzerland, where I had lived with my ex-partner who was Swiss and where I had community. And I was in the hospital for two months and had three surgeries and stayed briefly in Bern where my ex-partner's family was and stayed there for about a week and then ended up back in the Bronx in my childhood bedroom for a long convalescence. I had given up, I had been living in Brooklyn and had given up my apartment in Brooklyn before I left and ended up in my childhood bedroom in the Bronx. And so the irony is thick, the set of circumstances, you know, are rife with spiritual questions to think that you're going to your ancestral homeland and then to end up home in a different way. What's that about, (laughs) right? Like what's inside this? And so I turned to language as I do, not to poetry, but to language while I was inside that experience and in the aftermath while convalescing and to try to process and integrate my experience to really even identify the experience, right? There's grief and pain and panic and anxiety and they're all the things one might feel, but to identify the experience that is engendering those feelings, like what has just happened? What is this, right? Was something that language could be a vehicle for. So I filled notebooks, wasn't thinking about a poem at all, wasn't thinking about poetry at all. I was thinking about survival. I wanted to get through. And when I understood that I was going to be okay, more or less, and had this long recovery, I began to think spiritually, emotionally. And so I moved to California the following fall. You know, one of the mysteries inside this experience too was that the accident occurred just at the time that I had intended to apply for different professorships and fellowships, different opportunities for the following year. I left again my apartment in New York, so I figured, let's see where I land. Let's see where there are opportunities. And so because the accident occurred right at the time when I would have began to do that, I didn't do any of that. You know, I was between surgeries and in a hospital bed. And I was between surgeries two and three and woke up one morning, said to myself, if you get through this, you are really going to need something to do. And I remembered that the deadline for a fellowship at Stanford, the Stegner Fellowship, was the 1st of December. And I looked at the top right part of my computer and I saw that it was 8.30 a.m. in Zurich on the 1st or the 2nd of September. And then it occurred to me that because I was nine hours ahead of California, I had 30 minutes before the application window closed. And I threw together the material inside 30 minutes, submitted it, and then forgot that I did. And months later, while I was recovering, heard from that program that I had gotten the fellowship. And so I offer this because it was the one thing that I was able to put forward and it came through. And that to me also felt really striking, kind of cosmically even, if you will. And it also generated a two-year window where my creative work could be the focus of my day, that my daily work could be my poetry. And so when I got to California, I looked at these notebooks that I had filled. I was coming back into my strength and rehabilitating physically and psychologically and turned to these notebooks and the language inside them and began to think aesthetically, began to think about how I could somehow arrange a poem out of all this language and how I could make that. And 
The question, when I began to think of in that way, was really whether or not this could be a book-length poem. The experience was so vast and layered and complex, it felt like it probably could have been, and there was certainly enough material for that, but I came to see in the making of that poem that it wasn't necessary, that the poem could, in its most distilled version, still hold all of that complexity. And so the book really began as I started to think about this long poem that I was generating around the accident you know, which again was the result of a journey, a pursuit to Morocco to try to understand more about who we are as a people and our histories and how each of us might hold them differently. And the self-concept of my family, my extended community there, and to have conversations that I knew many folks on the ground did not want to have because I had tried. There was really a resistance to what it was that I was trying to do there, which is why it was important. But then I'm catapulted out of the country in injury. And so when I came to understand that this long poem was not a full book, but a long poem, I just intuitively understood that it was the center, the physical center of the book, because it was, of course, the emotional and spiritual center of it. And sections one and three ended up consisting of discrete lyric poems. And just thinking about the the organization of it, the two poems that you've asked me to read that I'll be happy to read in a moment, Colonialism and Mulatto Quadroon, Somewhere Between. It was very clear to me that Mulatto Quadroon, Somewhere Between needed to be early on in the book. And there was a poet, an elder, a mentor who suggested it, that it be the opening poem in the book. And I understood why she was making that suggestion. But it felt, again, really important to me to have Morocco in the opening gesture, Morocco in the very first movement. You know, there was a sense that this mentor had that colonialism, the opening poem, which is this narrative snippet, this memory from childhood of a boy rushing into traffic and the mother rushing across the street and slapping him and saying, why would you do that to me? And the mentor said, you know, that is the question a mother would ask in such a situation. So I'm not sure like what the poem finds out, right? It seems like maybe there should be more poem. And there was in an earlier draft, in a much earlier draft, there was more poem after the mother's language. And I understood why this mentor was saying it. And it was her reservations in that way that I think led her to suggest that Mulatto Quadroon be the opening. But of course, with colonialism, it is true that that is what a mother would ask. But the title of the poem requires a reader to consider what it means in that particular context or through that lens for the mother to lose the child, right? What else might the mother have lost besides her son? And of course, that's the primary loss. That would have been the primary grief. But it was also the tether to whiteness, to a life beyond the culture and country of origin, the escape, which might sound extreme in register or tone, but I think subconsciously was just that, you know? And so I understood what the mentor was saying, but finally didn't agree. And then it became clear to me that colonialism was the opening and the other poem could be the first poem of the first section. So why don't I read the poems? Does that sound good? Yeah, thank you. I was actually going to ask you afterwards about the sequencing and you got into that already. So we can have the poems. Thank you. Beautiful. Okay. Colonialism. At intersections, I knew to look both ways, as she had taught me, as she had known to look both ways at the port of arrival. 
not to Ellis Island or to JFK, but to the white blanket of my father, then back to her mother and away. So that when the single summer we returned to the land she had left, and the four of us, she, myself, my two tanned brothers, stood below the open Casablanca sun, waiting on a thinly grassed divider for a sliver to form within the traffic, the air smart and nearly visible as neighbor boys pointed down from windows, Mirikani, Mirikani, and I dashed through the exhaust of four lanes, not exactly a highway, but still too wide to be crossing, and without a crosswalk, no less. She rushed to the other side and slapped my backside hard. Alesh, mon fille, why would you do that to me? Thank you. Thank you. Mulatto Quadroon, Somewhere Between. I want to tell you what for me it has been like. To speak at all, I must occupy a position in a system whose positions I appear not to occupy. Though some say such non-position is my position, speak from that placeless place outside the system, etc., some would say and have said. If the placeless place is created by terms of the system, then it must be within the system, even if it appears otherwise. And so it may be that the position presumed to be of body might better be regarded as a position of thought or a receptivity to possible experience as conceived by the still implausible eye of a man who defined the flimsy self he carried against those whom he did not understand or know or in any real sense, see. And if the possible vision of that implausible eye accounted for you in name only, then filed you under consequence, side effect, it is not that the system fails to position you, it positions you actively and specifically nowhere so that you appear on the outside, but remain within. Or you appear within, but remain on the outside. Which is to say, in other words, a part and a part. And so if to speak in a particular social world, I must occupy a position and that world consists of positions that are clear, but none of which clearly I occupy, then it may be that I cannot, even if I want to, tell you what for me it has been like. And so. Thank you so much again, Sharif. Thank you. I love how the second poem, Mulatto Quadroon, in a way echoes another poem, Wound, in the collection. You said Mulatto Quadroon over here doesn't have the somewhere in between. Have I got a different edition? I just wanted to just double check. No, no, you don't, you know, and this is something that's come up in, in previous interviews, but the double colon in, in between the two words is the way that I am indicating that what I'm trying to touch is between these two terms. And what listeners who don't have a copy of the book 
might not understand or, or wouldn't necessarily assume is that the the words mulatto and quadroon in the title are also in quotation marks as a way to signal that while the poem will be focused on a kind of racial liminality, it's also interrogating language and, you know, the terms that we have to describe that. So the somewhere between is just is represented by the double colon between these two, these two terms. Uh, thank you so much for that. And the point about language is also one I just want to circle back to. And I'm just opening up to to wound. I'm just going to read the... I don't read as beautifully as you do, so but... I don't believe that. <laughs> please bear with me as I read your words back to you, right? So the poem begins, It has taken me years to begin this poem. I have not known from where to speak, because I had not been positioned. I had not positioned myself to speak. In this way, it has taken me years to begin not only this poem, but being... I'll stop there. I think there's more. It's an incredible poem. But what I wanted to ask is, you've spoken elsewhere about what is possible to language and what is not possible to language from a particular social position. And I wonder if you could speak to us about that in relation to these two poems, to the poem you've just read, and also Wound as well. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think about the way that the language that we exist inside of shapes consciousness and a sense of the world, that who we are within the world and, and the world itself is something that becomes more available to us as we are able to attribute language to the things that we are experiencing and seeing and knowing. And we, we ourselves would be included in that. And in the absence of language that might clearly identify or point to a particular experience, there is a problem that emerges there that is sort of a clot of an ineffable consciousness moving through the world, an experience that is hard, if not impossible to articulate, and therefore makes it very difficult to be known by those who are outside of that experience, comprehended, apprehended by those around the individual. And I think what happens in the third section of the book is Ars Poetica becomes a theme. There are a number of poems that address writing and some of them are self-referential in the way that wound is, right? It has taken me years to begin this very poem. You know, when I was shaping the book, it became clear to me that one thread of the book really needed to reckon with the ways in which the identity questions affected my development as an artist, particularly as an artist working in language that made the kind of developmental, the maturation process as an artist difficult that there was a kind of arrested development for me poetically in a poetry identity, in an identity as poet or, you know, I just did an interview for Poetry Foundation where I'm working as guest editor and uh, one of the guests said that one of their mentors had said, poetry is not a thing you are, it is a thing you do. And I think I agree with that, but you also have to be someone in the doing of that thing. And so what's true in my experience Bongani is that there's no exaggeration in that opening line of wound. It has taken me years to begin this poem. That is factual for me. For the majority of my 20s, I knew very few poets. I knew Linda Gregg. She had introduced me to another poet who was stateside. I was living abroad in different European countries for about five years and, you know, trying to write poems. And when I succeeded, I was really writing poems in a vacuum. You know, I wasn't sharing them with anyone. And for a long time, I felt like I didn't know what I had to write about. 
I knew that there was a commitment to poetry and a commitment to language, but I didn't know what was mine to express and what could be at the heart of a poetic project for me and at the heart of a poetic life for me or a life in poetry for me. And it was because I hadn't really begun to interrogate these questions such that I could understand the ways in which they were inhibiting me from speaking at all poetically, that the positionality that is marked by an instability or a liminality can be articulated, I hope is articulated in the book, but through poems that have the means to perform the impossibility of articulating it, such that this poem, as an example, Mulatto Quadroon, Somewhere Between, starts, I want to tell you what for me it has been like. It's not thinking. It's an expression of desire. It wants to connect with the person who is reading. I want you to understand the experience I've had here. And of course, that experience is difficult, if not impossible, to communicate. But through the lyric meditation, the reader, maybe by the end of the poem, begins to understand a little bit more of what it has been like for the person. And getting to the other side, or at least beginning to move into those questions, broke something open in me, you know? And when I really began to look in the direction of what had been repressed by my family, in my family, in me, the floodgates opened and all these poems started to come out. And the idea that I had nothing to say or that I didn't know what it was that I could talk about was so far from my mind, so far from my heart. And it was just quite clear what was mine at least now, at least this stage of my life to express. And so just speaking about wound within the context of the third section and what I'm what I'm offering up now, I wanna to say too that one of the things I found in my experience, Bungani, is that there can be an assumption that someone who is navigating a kind of interstitial racial place who is challenging the integrity of race is able to do so because of a privilege conferred by their positionality. And I have immense privilege that I acknowledge. But it's also true that it isn't at all that liminality, that like interstitial being is not only theoretical. It's not just an idea that we can talk about and think through together and find fascinating. It has real impact beyond simply one's self-concept or the language that one might use to call themselves or name themselves. And so the engagement with art and with an art practice steeped in language was a thread that felt really essential and that that occurred within the third section of the book, which is also really focused on time and the difficulty of inhabiting the present moment from this liminal interstitial space, right? And one's relationship with time as a consequence of the unknowability that the first two sections of the book spell out. Thanks again, Sharif. I've got a few more questions. Okay. I'm really doing this just to get a breath before we move on to maybe the last three sections I'd like to ask you. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to read you a short poem by a South African writer, Habiba Badarun, okay. because I think her work touches on some of the themes in your work. And it's a very short poem, but I read it as a way of just maybe catching a breath as an offering, and if you've got a response, you can just let me know. The title of the poem is, I Cannot Myself, mm. and it goes, to come to this country, my body must assemble itself into photographs and signatures. Among them, they will search for me. I must leave behind all uncertainties. I cannot myself be a question. That last line, I cannot myself be a question, I, mm. I really like that. and. I think there's something there that also is in your work. 
I also just want to say then it would be a mistake for me not to mention is I love how the cover of the book mm. calls into question what we see and don't see, how race and racism informs our ways of looking, our ways of seeing these black and white lines and the face that is hidden beneath or that is visible and also not visible. And I just really love that. I share the love for it. And I was just so happy when, you know, the designer at the press sent it over. And I at first missed the face, of course. I saw that, you know, there was a right alignment of the title and my name and that there were these vertical black and white lines. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe. And then I looked away and I stepped up from the table and got a little distance from the image. And when I looked back at it, I saw that there was actually something else happening. And I looked at it again and expanded my view of the image, opened it up so it was a full screen. And I said, this is it. This is it. This is beautiful. This is perfect. Totally perfect. I know at the very beginning you spoke about your mother mm -hmm. and there's a word that you use there, disavow. Mm -hmm. And if it's okay, I'd like to come back to your mother because it's quite an important figure in both books. In the opening stanza of not the whole thing, but a large part of the story, Forgive me if I get some of the pronunciation wrong, but it goes, over there she was, Sarawi, Asma, even a bit, over there, black. That poem echoes another poem, like plenty of other poems earlier in your first collection, Into Each Room We Enter Without Knowing. And I know you'd started speaking about it earlier, we've spoken about it already, but I just wanted to invite you to maybe offer a reflection on your mother, the racial dynamics mm -hmm. in Morocco and the many ways that your mother has shaped your thinking on race. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I think this question is really vital to understanding both books and really the life from which these books came. My mother identifies as an Arab, a Moroccan Muslim woman, eventually mother, these are the identity markers that were germane to her experience in her culture of origin, in her nation of origin. And there, in my experience, is an intense colorism in Morocco where, you know, it is preferable to be lighter, to be closer in proximity to whiteness or what might be perceived as such, and a distancing from sub-Saharan nations in a way that is upheld by legitimate real difference, linguistic difference, cultural difference, national difference. There are real differences, of course. And what I have found, the component of that that can be bewildering or that is challenging or reveals that there's more going on is that that distinction is upheld even when there is no bodily difference, even when the two individuals in question look similarly. I'm not saying that that makes them the same. I'm not saying that we need to impose a racial pathology onto their bodies. I'm just simply pointing out that that happens, that there is a range of physical bodily presentation in the north of Africa, in Morocco specifically, since that's what we're talking about, such that someone like my mother, who identifies in the way that she identifies and does not identify with Africa, really, and not with Blackness, could be perceived as such by folks from elsewhere. And so when my mother, specifically, when that person goes to the United States, of all places, and has entered contemporary US American racial politic, that is the consequence of a traumatic racial history, where all of this is still alive and well, and influencing and dictating so much of the way that we experience and know one another. 
and how we live in this country, there was a question that was put upon her of whiteness, really, I would say, because I think that that is the thing that is actually being protected and defended in the imposition of an identity onto her that she previously had not identified with. But there were assumptions about who she was. And for me as a U.S. American, born and raised in New York City, indoctrinated into the pathologies of this country. You know, I have perceived my mother as a Black woman from as early as I had that language or that conceptualization of identity. And she is the only person who can tell us who she is. I believe in the right to self-determine. I believe that none of us can tell those around us who they are, even when we are navigating a system that would purport to empower individuals to do just that and perhaps especially when. So it's not that I think someone from my mother's circumstances necessarily needs to revise her self-concept upon coming to this country, but I think it becomes important to consider those circumstances when children are involved, when there is a generation of children that are born kind of through or of this culture of context, but are not exactly from it, that are acculturated and conditioned differently. And what does that mean? And for a long time, you know, there was anger in me because it felt like a denial of a portion of who she is. And I'm not saying that there isn't that, but I've come to see that it it isn't primarily that. It might not even be that at all. And if it is on some level, it certainly is not primarily that. It's not a denial of anything in an immediate sense, so much as it is a protection of what she feels is being taken away from her when this other identity is put upon her. So it's complicated, and I don't want to speak for her, of course, but there is necessary overlap in our lives because I am of her. And so, of course, these circumstances can't not affect me. But the way that they did, which was part of your question, like how it shaped my thinking about race and identity was that I saw the constructedness of it. I was able to see the ways in which it fell apart and dissolved in a way that for me anyway has been particular. You know, I knew no other Irish Moroccans, (laughs) you know, apart from my two older brothers. And so there was a particularity to our experience, or at least in the experience, there was a loneliness to it. There was an isolation to it. I didn't see those around me having similar experiences. But what it demonstrated to me was the ways in which it was made in a way that, again, was not theoretical, but like really experiential. And the here and now, the constructedness of it, it would dissolve. It would reform in one room where there was a certain racialization put upon all of us, you know, me and my brothers and my mother, and then it would dissolve in the next room. And that was something that I absolutely did not have language for, could not really apprehend until a certain stage in my life, but eventually came to see. And so that's the thing that is really mine, you know, and that I I have to be able to talk about despite, you know, respecting her autonomy, her right to self-determine who she is, loving her, honoring her as my mother. So that's the the dissonance. Thank you so much, Sharif. I think of what your work tells us as readers is pretty much how race reaches into the most intimate of places, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember when you were telling us that your earliest memory of writing poetry is about after your grandfather passes, but this is the man that lives in the same building, Mm -hmm. but the relationship is complicated because of the marriage between your father and your mother. 
and and you live in the same building and you don't have a mm -hmm. you're not on speaking terms and to go from that experience of trying to put language to this experience and to have given us these two extraordinary books is yeah is i think there's something quite moving about that so I just want to circle back maybe just to have two final questions. Sure. I'm deviating from my notes a little bit, but been reading a recently published biography of Winnie and Nelson Mandela. And I wanted to ask you first one question is like, because you've spoken about this sense of placelessness at the beginning, like what does home mean for you? And I ask that because I guess it's been on my mind. Maybe when that question comes up, sometimes it feels like something quite frivolous, quite meaningless. Mm -hmm. But asking from where I'm at right now, where we are in this room, where the experience of people having homes taken away from them, homes destroyed, or mm -hmm. not being allowed to stay where they stay. So that question has real resonance, has real meanings. So I just wanted to ask, what does that word mean for you? Mm -hmm. And then maybe as a final question, and this is a question which I read somewhere that you ask your students that when the world is literally and metaphorically on fire, why write poetry? Gorgeous. Okay. Thank you for those beautiful questions. I don't know that I know what home is. And hearing that question, I think immediately of a conversation that I had with an older friend once who's a poet, maybe 20 years older than me. And we were having a long sprawling conversation that was touching on spiritual questions. And I said, what even is home? And the response very quickly was, home is a sentimental fantasy. And it stayed with me because this was years ago. So it has stayed with me. And I understood its wisdom. I didn't know that I necessarily agreed. I still don't know if I do agree that I understood the wisdom inside such a position, which is to do with the ways in which it's romanticized that the romanticization of the idea might in part be or would be inside the experience of lament, grief, disorientation, inside feeling that you don't have it. Because the expectation is that it is a clearly identifiable place where one could go and be and find that. And further into this conversation, we talked about being at home in the body, being at home wherever you are, feels really important to an eventual answer to the question if there is one that's available to us that wherever you are must in some way be or at least have the potential to be home. The second part of the question, I'm so sorry, Mangani. It's a question you ask your students about why write poetry. Yeah, I do raise this question with my students really at every level, but specifically in the intro classes where there is still these ideas that a poem is a puzzle and the whole point of engaging with a poem is to figure out what the color red in line seven really means and all of that. And the interpretive component of reading is a great source of pleasure, of course, but that there is something else happening in the encounter with a poem inside the reader, that a poem is an experience, that it might change you. And one of the things that I encourage my students to ask themselves in their ongoing relationship with poetry if they choose to have one is how can this poem enhance my life what can this poem teach me about being alive and it doesn't need to be epiphanic or oracular it could be tiny very very small you know and just like a a little piece of wisdom a little resource that one can take put in their pocket integrate into the way that they move through the world 
I think the answer to the question for me primarily, and one of the things that I explore with my students, you know, is the ways in which an engaged poetic practice changes you. That in order to find the poems, you evolve. I think that so often in my experience, when I'm working on a poem, when I'm looking at a draft, the failings of the draft inevitably lead me back to myself. They inevitably lead me back to my relationship with the subject at hand, whatever it is. Even if I'm you know, not directly writing about a memory or experience, whatever it is, I have not interrogated the thing enough. I have not considered it enough. And when I do that, I change. I change in the, in the act of doing that. Again, it might be in a really small way, but nonetheless, a change occurs. And then all these changes accrue. And a year later of writing poems, you do have a different orientation to the material. And it's in that way that I think it is really vital and an important thing to do in the face of the climate crisis, racial pandemics, violence, hatred, all of it, what we are contending with as humans on Earth. And it's not the only way to engender that kind of change, but it is one way and it has become my way. I think that's a perfect note to end. And now for the tribute section, the empty chair for this episode is Rwandan journalist Diodone Nyonsenga. Sharif, may I please ask you to read your tribute? Sure, I'd love to share a poem by the late poet Lucy Brock Broido. Uh, This was one of the last poems, I think, that was published of hers in her lifetime. Uh, She passed in 2016. And the poem is called The American Security Against Foreign Enemies Act. Why do you feel most vulnerable? Where in Damascus were you born? To whom do you pray? What does it mean to have winged brows? Have you ever spoken through a mesh? Was it dark speech that you made? Is it hot inside your burqa? Who was Frank Sinatra? Why was our war called civil and who won? Can you keep a bright gaze? How tall was Allah? What once was Palestine? What most displaces you? Have you visited Somalia? Have you ever crossed a border in a boat by night to another land? Sir, in all, how many died? Is your wife considered meek? Point to Mecca from right here. Why is our court supreme? What does the sound and the fury mean to you? Who was Huckleberry Finn? Has your husband ever traveled to Afghanistan? In Sharia, when a woman's hair is loose, is she a prostitute or slave? Do you understand what red state means? Do you speak American? Here, read that aloud. Do you have tattoos? What does paranoia mean? In what season do we vote for president? How much freedom does the First Amendment cost? Which is the tallest tree? You were once a doctor. How is it, as you say, you've come to selling vegetables? How tall was Jesus in bare feet? Do you consider him a refugee? Have you a disease 
that is contagious? What are the Hunger Games? Who sang Moon River best? Do you have friends or relatives who are barbarians? What is the blues? What is a second sleep? What most once made you weep? When was Lincoln? Who is Stephen King? Explain what obfuscation means. Have you been lashed? Who were our pilgrims? Why did they come? Have you ever eaten eel? Why have you one son? Where are the other sons? What are your other ones? Thank you so much, Sharif. Thank you. It's such an honor and a pleasure. And I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and answer these questions. So thank you again for having me. And I hope to have the chance to meet you in person at some point. For sure, for sure. Thank you, Sharif, for your lyrical, candid and generative responses. Thank you to Andre Burnett and Fasti Kalitz for producing this episode. Thanks to executive producer Lara Buxbaum, to PNSA board members Nadia Davids, Yawande Omotoso, Kate Hyman, and the whole of the board of Penn South Africa. And thanks too to Amy Bell Mulaudzi and Jahan Jones Radgowski for their support. Join us next week for a new episode of Season 8 of the Empty Chair, a Transatlantic Conversation. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned writers across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversation and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa and the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>